I guess we should start with you introducing yourself. Sure. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. I am a Project Syndicate contributor. I am also a professor at Bard College and CUNY Journalism School. We should talk about where we are. Sure. This is the CUNY Journalism, the Craig Newmark Journalism School. Where I teach foreign policy and global economics. I am also the author of a book called From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, and the CEO and co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, which is an organization focused on increasing female voices in the media. Right. Two truths and a lie. Uh, I am obsessed with my Fitbit. Um, I told off Snoop Dogg once, and... Um, I know how to do a handstand. I believe the Snoop Dogg. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say the lie is that you're obsessed with your Fitbit. No, the lie is that I can do a handstand. Oh, man. And as the new podcast host of PS Editor's podcast, what are you most looking forward to? I have to say I'm thrilled and I cannot wait to be talking to not only Project Syndicate contributors, but really get into the issues that I read about on Project Syndicate, whether it is, um, you know, what is happening at Davos, which we'll be talking about today, but then also talking about global economics and other issues such as free speech, but also global health, climate change, issues that are really confronting us in the 21st century. What's the weather like in Davos? Cold, I'm assuming. For the past several decades, world leaders, CEOs, tech titans, billionaires, philanthropists, and celebrities have descended upon Davos, Switzerland for an annual gathering hosted by the World Economic Forum. Their goal? To quote-unquote improve the state of the world. Davos's organizers and its attendees argue that solving challenges in a highly interdependent and globalized world requires dialogue and cooperation among those who can take action to influence the events and trends shaping global affairs. My guest today pushes back on that claim. He calls Davos a family reunion for plutocrats, the people who broke the world. You know very well that Davos is considered the sort of hobnobbing of the elite, the very people who threw so many millions of people around the world into the calamity that they find themselves in now and led to the rise of populism. Let me just play you this little soundbite from uh, a guy who's kind of gone viral right now, Anand Girdadas, who's just written this book, you know, Winner Takes All, The Charade of the Global Elites. Look what he just told me. I think Davos should end. I think it should be canceled this year and and should should end going forward. It, It is a family reunion for the people who, in my view, broke the modern world. Anand, you are not the first person to criticize uh, the elite at Davos, but your approach is, it's a little different. So at the risk of oversimplifying, what's wrong with Davos? Davos is a family reunion for the people who broke the modern world, in my view. Um, I don't think they deserve a family reunion, for starters. Um, If you look at the fact that the United States is in the longest government shutdown since we were founded in the 18th century, uh, I was actually in Britain last week, and in the House of Commons on Tuesday night, I witnessed this incredible debate and vote um, that is testimony to the chaos that country is in um, and the chaos that may cause it to 
sort of begin to unravel the post-war global order itself. Um, you have rage in France. You have a dangerous new president in Brazil. You have a lot of anger in the world that is really uh, causing many, many dangerous and kind of related, connected turns in world affairs. And I believe that the people, the, the kind of plutocratic elite gathering in Davos, of course, there's a lot of other hangers on who they handpick to join them, but the, the, the main focus of this event is the billionaires and CEOs who, who gather. Um, I believe they are f- in large measure responsible for the upstream anger over years and decades that has resulted in some of these downstream problems. I, I, you know, Brexit didn't start with Brexit. Trump didn't start with Trump. Um, you know, the Gilets Jaunes didn't start with people figuring out, you know, to order these yellow jackets. These are problems that have been decades in the making because in many of these societies, and I'll focus on the U.S., which my book focuses on, um, people have had a reasonable suspicion, a correct suspicion, that the society wasn't working for them anymore, that things were rigged, that um, that innovation was raining on us, but the the most of that rainwater was being harvested uh, by very few for their own benefit. And the data now bears that out. We now know that, that trade actually wasn't working for all those people while all those years they were rich explaining that trade was going to benefit everybody. We now know that... You know, uh, Tom Friedman columns written from business class cabins didn't actually capture the reality of what life was getting, you know, was like for most people. The world wasn't, in fact, flat, neither the actual world nor Tom Friedman's metaphorical one. Um, And so now we arrive at this point where the people who have underpaid people for years and years and fought for every little trick to do dynamic scheduling, to make people contractors, to fight minimum wage increases, to get more flexible labor markets. The people who underpaid their taxes, fought for um, tax policies like the carried interest loophole, fought against wealth taxes, fought against um, you know inheritance taxes, etc., and also evaded and avoided whatever taxes that you know were agreed upon by the society the same people who have you know built and maintained and operated um, an economic system that rewards companies for moving offshore and for you know uh, doing distributed production but just doesn't actually feel any loyalty to the communities that made them and that paid for the roads and educations that allowed them to do what they do um, those people are now getting together to celebrate their own change the world capability. I think the thing the, the world most needs is for them to, you know, take their hands off the wheel. But I want to push back here because those people are not the only ones in Davos. Along with the indiv- the business people that you're talking about, um, the people that have underpaid their employees, not paid their taxes, are the global leaders. I mean, we see numerous global leaders, but then we also see the humanitarians, the NGO workers, um, the philanthropists there. Don't you think it's actually a good idea for all of these people to get together to to actually discuss these issues? Sure. But it doesn't have to be at a billionaire's forum, does it? That the only, are we now so enthralled to the billionaires that we think the only way for those people to meet is at a billionaire's gathering? There's a million other places for them to meet. We could do it through the UN. We could create a new body. We could, you know, have it rotate among certain countries. I mean, I, I don't understand the idea um, that we have to discuss uh, what 
to do about uh, the hens in, in the fox's house. Um, there are many other places to, to worry about the future of the world. We don't need to, you know, I, I, I just don't think arsonists need to be in attendance at a firefighting convention. A lot of what you just said, particularly that analogy of the arsonists being um, at the convention, it's, it's highlighted in your book, Winners Take All. Why was it important for you to write this book? I, I, I travel a lot, and I don't just travel in fancy places. I spend a lot of time in a lot of parts of this country and other countries where people are not trying to massage their personal brands or figuring out their third startup. They're just trying to survive. They're just hoping to pass to their children a life 90 to 110% as good as theirs. Um, And what has been clear to me over years of reporting is that America has, with each passing year, um, been failing more and more of them. And and they know it. Um, And they were complaining long before they voted for Donald Trump. and I have that's just, it's just been a theme of my reporting. It's been a it's been something that's been unavoidable. Even when I was trying to report on other things, that was what was going on in people's lives. That's what felt like a really big story of our time. And I became interested in terms of this book in what was going on that was causing that. Because I think one of the things that happens with many writers and people who kind of do literary reportage is that poor people are very accessible. People on the wrong end of power actually love to talk because they like people to bear witness to their struggles. And they don't have publicists, and they're open. Um, And so if you want to report about inequality or poverty or who stole the American dream, you will always find that people on the wrong end of power have their door open to you. And that's wonderful. That's lovely. Um, But what happens is you end up with a lot of the best books about those kind of problems. Focus on the victims of the situation not the people who cause the situation, not the perpetrators. Um, It's sort of, you know, if you were trying to understand, um, you know, you're trying to understand a a great church, you're trying to understand Notre Dame, how how was that built? What's that architecture? Um, The best way to understand that would not be to walk into Notre Dame and interview five people who happen to be standing in it right now. They, They don't know. They didn't build Notre Dame. They're not responsible for it being what it is. They just happen to be people living there right now. Well, a lot of the regular people I report on did not engineer the world that, that deprived them of opportunity or deprived their children of an education or deprived them of a chance to, to get ahead. They're just tenants in that world. Um, so I decided to do what is harder to do, for me at least, which is to report on the people who actually designed this system. Um, you can't understand inequality without understanding rich people and what they want and, and their self, and, and their kind of systems of self-preservation, but also the systems of self-justification that they employ to, to protect it. Um, you know, the same way I think you couldn't understand the world of Downton Abbey if you just interviewed the servants. The servants didn't invent the world in which they were naturally understood as servants. Um, so I decided to to take advantage of the fact that I, as a journalist, got to move in some of these worlds and investigate those worlds and actually try to understand from the vantage point of many of these rich and powerful people what they're trying to do when they say they're changing the world to make the world a better place, what their limitations are, what their blind spots are. And many of the people I found to 
talk about this with um, and who became kind of characters in the book are, are they're not blind. They're, they're very aware of the problem that I name and, and to, to different degrees. Um, but they're wrestling with the contradictions of being in this moment where there's a reigning cultural belief that the rich and powerful should sort of be in charge of solving our biggest shared problems, uh, even though we sort of know deep down that they're going to do that in any way except by conceding any of their wealth and power. I want to pick up on what you just said about the rich and powerful solving everyone's problems. Um, and that's, that is definitely a key point um, in your book. And you say today's elites may be among the mo- more socially concerned elites in the history. In that same breath, you note that they are also among the most predatory in history. You attribute that to their approach to free markets rather than trying to reform the systems that people share in common. You write there out for profit maximization and shareholder value, the things that we were just talking about. How did we get to this point where the free markets are in charge? Well, before I say that, you know, I think one, it, it, there's, I think there's a difference between like the kind of capitalism we're living through now and free markets, by the way. You know, I like free markets more than I like what we have right now. I don't think what we have right now is free markets. Like we have five companies that own the internet. I don't think that's free. I don't think that's how free markets work. Um, We have a capitalism, much as we had about 100 years ago, of monopoly, of rent-seeking, of incredibly political connected companies. I don't think you need to spend, if you're confident of where you're going to end up in a free market, I don't think you spend $30 million in Washington lobbying, right? Um, You know, I, I think the idea that we have a free market is one of the deceptions of, of the age. But how do we get here? You know, the story that I tell in the book is that there was a and, – and, and, a, and a book that really takes this on more fully is, is Jane Mayer's incredible opus, Dark Money, um, which really tells the story of how we got to this moment, whereas my book's more about the kind of self-justifying apparatus that has kept us in this moment. But the story that I tell in the book is that – Starting in the 1970s, um, I think you could trace it back further, but you really had this feeling among the kind of American business class, chamber of commerce class, that there was this feeling of being besieged. Soviet Union was not yet defeated. People didn't know which way things were going to go. You had stagflation. You had, um, you know, and and this had been an era of, like, enormous liberal accomplishment. You'd had all these, you know, major laws passed, wars on poverty, great society. Um, you had, you know, students on campus revolting like every other day. You could imagine being like a country club business person in the 70s thinking like, I'm kind of on the losing end of history here, right? I'm, I'm, I, I, I may not really be able, I mean, Nixon started the EPA, right? That tells you the kind of power that corporations had in that moment, like not a lot. Um, but it also says something about the power of government that Nixon saw the importance of actually starting the EPA. Correct. But it also just shows you, like, Nixon lived in the FDR era, right? So being a Republican was different from being a Democrat, but they were all operating the FDR era. Whereas, like, you and me live in the Reagan era. There's, there's a left and right, but it, we're all in Reagan's, you know, we're all in Reagan's arena, um, just on different sides of the field. And so... There was, there's this famous memo called the Powell Memo where Lewis Powell, before he became a Supreme Court justice, 
was this kind of chamber of commerce type lawyer. And he wrote this memo basically saying, like, we need business people need to get smart about politics. We can't, we can't just, like, run our businesses, buy for a dollar, sell for two. We have to actually understand power. And boy, did they. Right? That's really where you start to see. And there were other, you know, other factors. And I really commend the book Dark Money to people. But there was this, this sense of, you know, they didn't have... They felt they didn't have the universities. They didn't have the media. They didn't have a lot of other power centers. They had to really organize as a business community. And then, of course, they allied with the evangelicals. And, you know, you have a, then a whole story of a kind of business elite that really understood political power and understood. And, and, and fast forward today, they have institutes at all these universities. They have used philanthropy, actually, to, to, to fund their thinkers and fund, you know, fake grassroots activism. And, of course, they have their own state propaganda network and Fox News. Um, and, you know, what a difference a generation makes. So as that ha- – and but my book is actually not about those people. My book's not about the right because I think those people were actually very straightforward in what they wanted to do. They wanted to protect business by having low re- you know, lower taxes, less regulation. And they're very straightforward, and I think we know what they are. You know, and this is the story with the Koch brothers, Richard Mellon, Scaife, and others that Jane Mayer writes about. My book picks up after that world has been achieved for them. They've consolidated that power. And as I say, I think we now, with the election of Reagan and Thatcher, we live in their arena, right? And they're on the right side of the field and other people maybe on the left side of the field. The question is, as, as, the, as the things that resulted from that takeover started to occur, you started to have cutbacks to programs. You started to have more homeless people, more mentally ill people not getting care. You started to have social mobility going, you know, grinding to a halt. People born poor started ending up poor more often. Uh, people born rich started to stay rich with greater frequency. As all that started to happen, the predictable results of that revolution, um, there was then the question of how would people respond. Now, the people on the right, this was the world they wanted. So the response has been to double down and celebrate. I think a lot of people I write about are the plutocrats who tend to be more on the left. Probably not all of them that I write about, but probably most of them vote more on the left, the ones I write about. Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. And I think the really interesting thing is how did those kind of plutocratic folks on the left who shared the left's traditional goals of more equality, um, you know, shared prosperity, societies that work for more people, how did they respond to this age of inequality? And how did they operate within this kind of new arena in which they found themselves? Um, and I think the answer is that they essentially bought in to the rights framework that the world is best improved by unshackling markets and letting the moneyed rule the roost in domain after domain. And they essentially gave into this theory of like post-political, extra-political problem solving, where education, women's empowerment, health, etc., all became areas where, you know, an app or a lean-in foundation um, or other, you know, tempting varietals of fake change um, were allowed to sort of step in uh, where traditionally public action would have, would have entered. It's interesting you loop Gates into your list of left-leaning business people. We are recording this while Davos is actually taking place. Yesterday, Bill Gates was asked about your book, and he thinks the system needs to be tweaked, not necessarily demolished. 
We also have to recognize that Bill Gates is somebody through his foundation who has saved millions of lives. Why include him? You know, I think Gates is an interesting case. First of all, you know, I'm grateful that Bill Gates blurred my book. Second of all, I was a little surprised when yesterday at Davos, he sort of insinuated that maybe I was a communist, given my criticisms. Uh, here's a somewhat more critical question from Anand Giridatas, who's, who's written a book called Winner Take All. He's, what do you think of the rising chorus, that the rising chorus of philanthropist critics get right? There's there's people who, who feel, and Anand argues, that, that it, for many, philanthropy is a way of not really changing, changing the fundamental system, but a way of making us kind of feel better and, and perpetuating inequalities. If people think you know, communism works better or something. I don't know. Uh, the, to me, the system could constantly be detuned. And I'm a believer in an estate tax. I'm a believer in more progressive taxation. Uh, you know, I think we have a system that works, but we can tune it to achieve more equality. Things like the earned income tax credit should be made substantially more generous. The people who suggest there's an alternate system, I'll just respectfully disagree with that, that some radically different system would both create good things uh, and give us the wealth that we should spread in a more equal way. So here's the issue with Bill Gates. Let's, let's take it head on. I have a bunch of criticisms, and there's kind of a, a series of boxes that different people might check when plutocrats seek to govern us through, you know, private power over public life. Um, some people check more of the boxes than others. You take the Sackler family, which was behind the drug OxyContin, which helped create the opioid crisis, which has killed 200,000 people and counting. Or if you take Mark Zuckerberg, you check a lot of the boxes, right? So there's the box of, have you done massive social harm? Mark Zuckerberg, Sacklers, sure, yes. Um, have you used your philanthropic glow to cover up that harm, thereby preventing us maybe from seeing the fullness of it. Yes, absolutely. Do you have too much power as an individual over public life in a democracy? Yes. Okay. So those kind of people check all three of the boxes, and there's probably other boxes. Um, I think when you get to someone like Bill Gates, you say, you know, did you harm lots of people in making the money? No. He had a monopoly. A monopoly is actually a bigger deal than we often realize. It means you're kind of deoxygenating the economy for your competitors. That has actually pretty big consequences in terms of the prices of whether people can afford things and you know whether it's easy to start a business or not. So you know I, I don't want to minimize monopoly, but it's not like the Sacklers. Or it's not like Mark Zuckerberg, obviously. Um, you know, second thing, did he use? Does he use this giving to sort of just cosmetically cover over those sins? No. Mark, you know, Bill Gates has done absolutely transformative giving that has benefited millions of people's lives. That's all real. Third issue. Does Bill Gates have more power in a democracy than any individual should have? Yeah, he does, right? Forget stuff in foreign countries. That raises a whole other issue. We can talk about colonialism and white man's burden or whatever. But just domestically, where you have an American citizen exerting power on an issue like Common Core, um, I would ask the question, why do we even bother with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and really working so hard? People have died to just ensure that no one has two votes and no one has zero votes, that everybody has one. We have spent, we literally, you know, have fought wars to defend the spirit of that principle. So why do we do that if then we create another door to the nightclub of our democracy through which only billionaires can enter and 
basically make huge decisions about what our public schools teach, what kind of health systems we have, how we empower women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it actually makes no sense. So, so even the, the, the good actors like Bill Gates um, are, have, have, to my mind, an excess of power. They just, they're literally voting a, a million times. And, you know, uh, given that we're at a moment where people, we panic so much about the idea of people voting twice, I'm not sure why we wouldn't be alarmed about someone voting a million times. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of larger issue, which is that, you know, I think we've been taught by a kind of business age to always think in terms of the marginal act. Isn't this individual act of do-gooding good? Wouldn't you rather have this than not? Would you rather have they buy a yacht or not? People always ask that. Well, yes and no. There are certainly many of these acts are on, on their own good. Some of them are not. I mean, some of them are actually cause harm. But, but, but many of them, let's stipulate that many of them are good. Uh, first of all, there's a systemic question um, where even if the individual act is good, we should be asking questions about what are the kind of circumstances that allowed that money to be made, that allowed it to be kept, um, that allowed it to not be taxed more, and then put the rich person after getting a tax deduction in a position of lording over poor people and helping them. What are the, even if the individual act is good, what's the, what's the systemic act, right? Um, and, and I think it's, it's that systemic lens that's often missing. And, and, I'll, and I'll mention one more example of how the Gates problem, even the people who are good, we need to kind of rethink it. So go, going back to Davos, if you think about how the kind of Davos system works. You got all these plutocrats coming together talking about making the world better. Um, and then when issues of AOC's tax plan comes up. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Correct. Um, they st- oh, they'd be terrible for the world. They'd be terrible for the world. United States, there's been a call by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to tax uh, people earning over 10 million at a 70% tax rate. The current top rate in the United States is 37%. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? <laughs> I just want to say I'm thrilled that they're asking. Wow. <laughs> you know, or other, other policies that wealth, ta- oh gosh, that's self-defeating for the world. So we have to step back and talk about how the do-gooding fits into that, right? If those rich people were just sitting at home in Greenwich, tweeting their thoughts about the best way for them to protect their fortune. I don't think anybody would cover it. I don't think anybody would report on it. I don't think anybody would think it's interesting. I don't think anybody would treat it as an idea. People would just treat it as what it obviously is, which is like people playing self-defense, which is fine. Let people do that, right? Um, People would just say like, oh, rich person's like opposing tax increases because they pay more taxes. When you go to Davos or these other forums, and now they're talking about Africa. Suddenly, Michael Dell or, or Stephen Schwartz, they're talking about Africa. Wow, so nice. Africa. They're sparing a thought for Africa. They're talking about inequality. Wow, panel on inequality. So nice. They're talking about empowering women. They don't hire any, but they're going to empower some. There was a panel yesterday on Bitcoin, and a, one of the panelists were women for women in Bitcoin, and there was not a single woman on the panel. Right. Now, in Davos, women are on the T-shirts. They're just not on the panels. Um, and, you know, they're talking about refugees. And what that talk does, what the, what, the, what the panels on those issues do, is it transforms the image of those people. 
suddenly you're not just a random hedge fund dude from Greenwich with opinions, with kind of like normal, you know, with normal rich guy opinions about like low tax is good and like low regulation good, which are not like actually ideas, but just kind of like just needs turned into ideas. Um, suddenly you're like a person on Africa panel. You care about the world. You, you're a leader. I've seen it. I've, I've gone to these things. I've seen how it happens, right? So now Steven Schwartzman or Michael Dell, you're on the panel. You, you look different. You feel different. You're not, you're not just out there repping. You are actually someone who cares. You're a leader. You're a leader of mankind. You, 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 you care. And then a question comes out about, hey, what do you think about 70% marginal tax rates on income of $10 million or more? And what the Africa and the philanthropy and the other stuff has done for you is it, it has elevated your stature. So now when you answer that question, you're not a rich guy being like, I don't really like high taxes because I would pay more. You're a sage, right? The do-gooding talk and action has actually turned you into another kind of person. It has turned you into a person with authority that journalists believe and, and report on to, to, to pronounce on what the world should be like. And you have kind of been rebranded through relatively modest giving. And now you can fight back against a Piketty idea of a global capital tax or the 70% marginal idea or the kind of wealth tax that Donald Trump once proposed. Um, you can fight back against that from a perch that you would never have had if you'd just been a business guy doing business. So w- tell us how this ends. I mean, if these people at Davos are up there and they're being perceived in these different ways that you talk about – um, and they're feeding into a lot of these problems that are contributing to growing inequality. What should the Davos set be talking about, or how do you actually, how do you structure it so that Davos or forums like that are actually productive? Look, I mean, I, I, I think um, history is like a is like a mob boss, right? History tells them that we could do this the easy way, or we could do this the hard way. Right? The, 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 there's just no other lesson to draw from history. Like we've been in these situations many times before, and they've ended in different ways. Right? Uh, we didn't have a civil war over letting women vote. We managed to do it politically. We managed to amend the Constitution. There were movements. They petitioned. They fought. <laughs> Threats were made. Husbands were convinced, and like we didn't kill each other over that one. But on, you know, on. Uh, on race and slavery about 60 years before that, we you know, nearly lost the country and killed about, I don't know, one in eight men. Uh, so when you have these systems where um, people with undue power and privilege are you know, clinging to it and resisting change, it can go down the way the Civil War did or it can go down the way women's suffrage did. And I think this is where they have a choice, you know? Um, I think if you are up there in the highest town in Europe and you still think the world's not going to look very different in 10 years, um, you are, you know, just sort of off your gilded rocker. But the, what, they, what they still have an opportunity to shape is whether they want to continue making the problems worse year by year. I mean, the, the data last year was that 82% of new wealth generated in 2017. Forget Forget the entirety of human history before 2017, which obviously we should not do. But for a minute, pretend that the world started anew in the woke era of 2017, where we all knew about all these issues. 
a bunch of new wealth created. The global top 1% cornered 82% of that new wealth. That includes it. That's all in. That's, that's at the end of the year, with business having been done, philanthropy having happened, money being given away, at the end of the year, 82% of new wealth was in the 1%'s hands. So even if you say there are legacies of slavery and the exclusion of women and, that have caused historical problems, we're basically still actively creating that, those kinds of distributions now. We're making it worse every year. And so I, what I think the folks you know, on the mountaintop need to do is figure out how to come correct fast and douse this anger fast. And that's going to require sacrifice. And it's going to require many of them to become traitors to their class, whether that's through their philanthropic giving, who they support for president. Um, you know, Bill Gates said yesterday, after insinuating that I was a communist, that he supports an estate tax. Well, that's really good. But, you know, if he were to actually devote the kind of resources to pushing that issue, as he does to some of his philanthropic work, he might actually have way more of an impact than, than some of those philanthropic programs like Common Core. Um, and then I should say that I don't think the lion's share of what needs to happen is, is up on the mountaintop. I, I think the more important thing that needs to happen is people need to take change back, and I think they are. I think we had an election in this country which, where a lot of people who are not from what I call market world in the book um, one, I, I do not think this is Bill Clinton's Democratic Party anymore, or even Barack Obama's. I don't think there's going to be a, a, as many Goldman Sachs and McKinsey executives in the next Democratic administration. I think things are changing. Um, and I think there is a recognition that um, a certain kind of money obsession has ruled the last 30, 40 years of our public life and has you know, limited our imagination of how the world can be. And there are other ways to organize it. And I think there are a lot of exciting people on the horizon who are ready to organize it in those other ways. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That was Anand Girdardas, the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bay-Rosley.